You're listening to sermon audio from River City Church in Fargo, North Dakota. River City Church exists to make disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus through the gospel of Jesus. You can find out more about River City by visiting our website at www.rivercityfargo.org. Our hearts are prone to wander, our minds are prone to wander, and so we ask for your help, not just in our weariness, but in our distracted world. We ask that by your Spirit we would have minds that comprehend and hearts that receive what you have for us. Speak to us through your word, we pray, that your church might be encouraged and built up and reminded of the core, simple truth that you are present with your people. And so not that you need to be invited to be with us, but that we would take and receive your invitation to meet with you this morning. Speak to us by your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. You can have a seat. Good morning. It's my honor to serve you this morning in the area of preaching and teaching. Specifically, we're continuing our series in the book of Exodus. So go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn to Exodus chapter 25 if you need a Bible. Uh, So folks are coming around and can put one in your hands. Um, We're going to try this morning, well we will hopefully, we will succeed, we're going to cover seven chapters of Exodus this morning, chapters 25 through 31. Uh, And uh, the reason we're going to cover all of them at once in one sermon, is because they all deal with the tabernacle, specifically uh, the worship of God, how he's instructed his people in the wilderness to worship him. All of these chapters, 25 through 31, kind of speak to this reality. So that's why we're going to cover them all at once. The tabernacle was a large tent surrounded by a a courtyard of, of fabric, essentially, The Lord told Moses, here's how I want you to build this thing as a place for corporate worship. Later, they'd be given instructions for a temple that King Solomon would build when they settled in the promised land. But right now, it needed to be portable. And this would be something that God's people would need. They didn't know it yet, but they would wind up being a wandering and a homeless people for a generation. And so right now, they were in this in-between. They're not where they were in Egypt. And they're not where they want to be yet in the land of promise. And this is a reality to which I think we can relate. This is something we can connect with. Because we too can feel discontent and unsettled. Uh, An acquaintance of mine, someone I know, was kind of telling some people, and I overheard this conversation last Thursday, he woke up feeling off. He wasn't sure why Thursday felt weird when he woke up. It could have been the cough medicine or the cold medicine he took the night before to go to sleep. It could have been the coffee that he pounded to offset what was left of the cough medicine the next morning. He's not sure. But after the the first set of morning meetings on Thursday morning at his job, uh, his boss kind of pulled some of the employees aside and said, hey, we're going to have a quick another meeting after this over here in this other room. And he jokingly said to one of his coworkers, well, this is the end for us, isn't it? As a joke. Well, as they sat down in that room and the CEO and the CFO of their small company sat down with those employees and said, actually, 
with tears in their eyes, we regret that our company has not made its projections that we had hoped. We are far too overstretched, and we need to begin some layoffs, and those begin with you. So what was a joke with this coworker five minutes previous became reality. Now, this guy, I don't know him very well, but he's a believer in Jesus and has a deep trust that the Lord will provide. But as you can imagine, it's still a little unnerving, right? What's going to happen next? He resides in that feeling of unsettledness. And we can relate to that in some degree. There are many things that cause us to feel unsettled or discontent. Maybe we're waiting to hear back on those test results or that application we sent. Maybe we feel that that promotion or that raise is just around the corner if we can just complete this one last project. Maybe there's just an underlying feeling for us that if we can just make it to the next week or the next job or the next house, then we will be settled in whatever it is that is keeping us feeling unsettled. I talked to one uh, uh, guy after the service who's nearing retirement, and he goes, honestly, when you're talking about feeling unsettled, I'm not losing my job, but I am losing a sense of identity. I've been working since I was 15, and now I don't know what to do with myself. I said, well, let me just remind you, the point of the sermon, God is with you. You know, like, but there's a reality to that. And so to settle, often for us, to, to give, get a sense of settledness, it's not a word, um, to, to settle ourselves, to satisfy some of our discontentment, we tend to scrape and search for all sorts of things that will help us feel settled, feel secure. And this is where I think that these seven chapters in Exodus, which deal with cubits and fabric and animal skins making a tent, and what do these things have to do with any of this? Whereas this, these seven chapters, I think, of God telling his people how to worship him in the wilderness might be both a challenge and an encouragement to us as Christians thousands of years later. Because we often feel discontent and unsettled. But God is present with us. And if God is present with us, if he dwells with us, we can dwell secure. We're going to read portions of our text as we work our way through these seven chapters. But let's start with a portion from Exodus 25. We're going to read 1 through 22 as a starting place. Uh, Exodus chapter 25, starting in verse 1 through verse 22. Uh, This will be where we'll start. This is the word of the Lord for us to begin this morning. Exodus 25. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him. You you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution you you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze. Blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. Goat's hair, tanned ram's skins, goat skins. Acacia wood, oil for the lamps. Spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense. Onyx stones and stones for setting. For the ephod and for the breastpiece. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. Verse 10. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and outside you shall overlay it. And you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its 
four feet, two rings on the one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. You shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. You shall make the mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold, of hammered work. You shall make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherub on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread, its, spread out their wings excuse me, above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces one to another toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. Let's stop there. This is God's holy word. One of the central realities of this tabernacle for the people of Israel is the tangible reminder that Yahweh, their God, the one true God, dwells with them. That he is present with his people. He's not some far-off deity they have to get his attention. He has said straight up, I will come and be with you. I will come to you. It's the problem and solution from our section of Exodus this morning that we often feel discontent and unsettled, but God is present with us. He dwells with us so that we can dwell secure. So I want to look at what it means that God is present with his people as we unpack and learn about this tabernacle here in these seven chapters. And here's how we'll break this down. We'll we'll be moving a little bit back and forth through this larger section. It's not all going to be 25 to 31 in uh, order. Because I want us to move from the outside of this tent to the inside. So three points this morning. God's presence with his people means that we have God's protection, that we have God's provision, and that we have God's power. The tabernacle reminds Israel and reminds us that God is present with his people. And if God is present with his people, it means we have God's protection, God's provision, and God's power. He is at work for his glory and for our good. Like I said, we'll go from the outside to the inside of the tabernacle. Um, Specifically, keep this in mind, as we're looking at this tent and the instructions for this tent and all its components, that this place where God is present with his people points us to Jesus. So let's start with our first point. God being present with his people means we have God's protection. I think we can get a feel for this just looking at the... The idea of what this uh, structure looked like. I have a sample image of what the tabernacle itself likely looked like, according to the instructions given. Put it up on the screen. We'll see the tabernacle itself of the one previous. There you go. The tabernacle itself is the small tent in the middle, and on the outside is the courtyard with walls and a gate on the east side. Let me read Exodus 27, verse 18. The length of the court shall be 100 cubits, the breadth 50, the height 5 cubits, with hangings of fine twined linen and bases 
of bronze. A cubit, not a unit of measurement we use, a cubit is approximately 18 inches. So this courtyard is somewhere between, somewhere approximately 150 feet long, front to back, and 75 feet wide with 20 beams of bronze down the side, three along the back and four on the front, which provide space for a fabric gate. 15 cubits high means the walls would go up between 22, no, excuse me, did I say 15? Five? Five cubits high would go up between 22 and 23 feet. So to give you some perspective, from this back wall with the barn wood to the windows is approximately 70 feet. I measured it with a tiny tape measure this week. <clears throat> so it's estimate, estimate, right? Give or take 70 feet. <clears throat> from the wall here of the nursery to the windows is approximately 50 feet. And from the floor to the ceiling is between 12 and 13 feet, just in the space that we're in right here. So as a comparison, the walls of this courtyard that you see here were just a bit wider than this room is deep, three times longer than this room is wide, and just under twice as tall as the ceilings in this room. So this was no small thing. You could see this structure from far off. And the inside dimensions were approximately 10,000 square feet or so. Clearly, this was designed and constructed to set apart everything that was inside. There's a sense of protection here. Further, the tabernacle itself, the tent inside this courtyard, was made up of 10 curtains, 6 feet by 42 feet in length, made with fine linen and blue and purple and red yarn, skillfully crafted, beautifully decorated. And then over the tent goes a protective layer of goat skins, uh, think uh, leather curtains, if you will, 45 feet by 6 feet, along with ram skins that have been tanned or treated, therefore making them weatherproof, resistant to the elements. So that's the tent inside the courtyard. And then within that tent, within the tabernacle, there's one more division, one more separation. The Inside the tabernacle is called the holy place. Inside that is the most holy place. The Holy of Holies. And that's where the Ark of the Covenant would be placed. And we're going to get into all these details here in a moment, why they're important. But essentially, God is saying this. I've come down to dwell amongst you. And you're going. this is how you'll be set apart. You're coming out from the world and into this place that has been set apart for you. My glory, God's saying, and my holiness will be protected with layers and each step into the tabernacle is preparing you for what's next in engagement with God. Now, only one person was allowed to go all the way into this most holy place, the Holy of Holies. That was the, the high priest. <clears throat> they would enter the courtyard where all Israel could be. And then they'd step inside the holy place of the tabernacle. Only the priests could go. And then behind the veil, only the high priest could go to meet with God on behalf of the people. Because God is holy, as we talked about last week, God himself gets to set the parameters for how he's to be worshipped. He sets the limitations. This is how I would prefer you to worship me. So there's dividers and are in need of consecrated priests and one chosen high priest to speak to God on their behalf. And this is where 
even a tent of linen and yarn and animal skins, we see a better tabernacle in Jesus. In John 1, the scripture that, that Josh read earlier, the Apostle John says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And if you go all the way down to verse 14, here's what John says. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. If I can give it to you literally, and the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. John is speaking of Jesus, the second person of the triune Godhead, who condescends from the glory of heaven, who takes on a human nature, now both fully God and fully man. Jesus, the Word of God, as John says, the Logos of God, comes and tabernacles, dwells among us. The tabernacle in the wilderness was the place where God dwelled with Israel. He was present with them there in a way that they could know him and understand him. Jesus Christ is the full and better tabernacle. The person in which the fullness of God was pleased to dwell now dwells among his people. God being present with us means that we too now are set apart. We're pulled in and protected from the outside world, not just that it would corrupt and destroy us, but also purifies God's people so that they would, could stand before God without fear of judgment. We're going to get into this as we talk about the ark, but the reality is that Jesus covers us by his own blood so we can come with confidence into the presence of God. We live under God's protection and care as he is present with us. That's the first thing. Two, God's presence with his people not only means we have his protection, we have his provision. There's a handful of elements and furniture in and around the tabernacle, but I want to highlight two of them that speak to God's provision. There's a table for bread and there's a lampstand of gold. First, the bread. Exodus 25 tells us, verse 23, Start to give us the details for this table. What it means. The table uh, of the bread of the presence. Or sometimes called the show bread. This is where that bread was placed inside the tabernacle. The bread of the presence was made up of fine flour. It was baked in 12 loaves. Arranged into two piles of six loaves each. The table was made of pure gold. Covered with frankincense. And served as a memorial food offering to the Lord. The bread itself could only be eaten by Aaron and his sons as priests to God. It was eaten in a place that was holy on the Sabbath every week. The 12 loaves represent the 12 tribes of Israel. They were prepared and they were set apart on a gold table. And it was given as an offering to the Lord. Now a meal like this would have been representative of God's covenant with them. You remember last week after God establishes a covenant, Moses sprinkles, throws blood on the altar and on the people. Moses and Aaron and 70 elders go up partway up the mountain. And what, after God has ratified his promise, they sit down and have a meal together. This would have been a remembrance of that. That God has been faithful And so as each of the loaves of the bread were broken about God's faithfulness to his people, to his tribes, it reminds them of God's provision for them, his faithfulness. Everything that they had, God provided. 
And so they could offer back to God in simple loaves worship for what God had done. So you can imagine that when Jesus uses a phrase like, I am the bread of life in John chapter 6, that it would have caught the attention of the devoutly religious people of his day. Jesus is saying, and they would have picked up on this right away, I am the bread offering. I am the bread from heaven. I'm the provision for the 12 tribes. Let me read to you just a little bit of John chapter 6. You can turn there if you'd like. John chapter 6, starting in verse 48. This is Jesus speaking. I am the bread of life, he says. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Jesus is talking about himself. A little further down, verse 58, Jesus says, Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. We talk about it every week as we take communion. Jesus tells his disciples in the upper room, Luke 22, Jesus took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them. What did he say? This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The bread of the presence placed in the tabernacle is a reminder of the provision of God. And it points to the fulfillment in Jesus who is himself the bread of life. Second item we see here which speaks to God's provision is the lampstand. A hand-hammered lampstand made of pure gold, shaped like a tree or a blossom of sorts. It likely looked like a modern-day menorah, if you're familiar with that form, except for it didn't hold candles. Each arm held itself a self-contained oil lamp. There was a place for seven lamps on this lampstand, And it was designed in such a way that it was to give light to everything around it. The entire space would have been lit up by this particular lampstand. Now, I'm going to ask a really simple question. What is the purpose of a lamp? Right, to bring light to something that's dark. Right, you turn on the light because it's dark. Now, there's all kinds of parallels when it comes to lamps and lampstands in Scripture, to the number seven being a number of perfection and holiness. We don't have time to get into all of that today, although it's really cool and there's a lot there. Often the light of a lamp speaks to God's presence, His blessing of His people. He's a source, the source of light. And as we read in in John, the source of truth, perfection in the midst of darkness. He blesses his people with the light of his presence. Think about it this way. The glowing embers of the fire burning on the bronze altar in the courtyard may have allowed a, a pretty a low glow to that larger space. But the inside of the tabernacle, under the light of this lamp, would have been brightly lit 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Non-stop light. Exodus 27 tells us a little bit about more, a little bit more about this lampstand, specifically the oil. The priests were responsible to collect the oil from the people, and it was supposed to come from pure, crushed olives. And the lamp burned 24-7. All day and all night, the burning lamp was a physical reminder of God's presence so that they would never 
ever be in the dark if they were with him. To quote one uh, commentator, speaking of the lamp, it continuously burned. Even in the night, the light reminded the people that God's presence was among them. Even when darkness covered the land, God's light still shone brightly. Now Jesus has something to say about light as he does bread. John chapter 8. Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus is a better and everlasting light. Not just a temporary light to chase away shadows that has to be tended to and refilled, as was the responsibility of the priests, to tend to each lamp to make sure it didn't go out. Jesus is saying, I'm an eternal light. that I don't just illuminate the inside of a tent. I push back the darkness of evil and Satan, and I expose all of that to the light of God's glory. And Paul says in Ephesians, you used to walk in the dark, but you don't live there anymore. You are now light in the Lord, so now walk as children of light. In verse 13 of Ephesians 5, therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So it's Jesus himself who promises and then provides spiritual bread that will satisfy us so that we will no longer hunger for other things. And it's Jesus who provides spiritual light so that what is shameful and evil and lurks in the darkness is exposed so that we can walk without fear in the light. And as 1 John tells us, that if we walk in the light as he is in the light, that is, we walk in the light of Christ, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all unrighteousness. God's presence with his people speaks to his provision. He gives all that we need. And third, God present with his people means we have access to God's power. Now, I said we're going kind of from the outside to the inside. So we're starting at the the edges, at the courtyard, inside the tabernacle itself, and now to the most innermost part, the Holy of Holies. And the only thing in the Holy of Holies is the Ark of the Covenant. Now, we're kind of ending here with the Ark of the Covenant, but it is, in reality, the most significant and important piece to their whole practice of worship. Because it's here, over the Ark of the Covenant, that God meets with his people. God's presence would somehow rest uniquely over the ark as he would speak with Moses. It says, though, as we read in our passage to begin, the ark's to be carried on two long poles that would be run through rings on either side so that once it was fashioned and put together, no human hands would touch it, for they would die. We actually see this happen in 2 Samuel chapter 6. We don't have time to talk about it now, but someone hoping to be helpful touches the ark to keep it from tipping over because they're not carrying it on poles. They're carrying it on a cart like they were told not to, and that guy dies. You can read more about it in 2 Samuel chapter 6. Inside the ark, Moses was told to place a few things. The tablets of the law, the Ten Commandments. Also, if you recall, some of the manna that God provided... When they were walking around in the wilderness, it was placed into a jar that was put inside the ark. And Aaron's staff was also put in there. Each one of those things is a reminder of the faithfulness of God. A pastor and mentor of mine might call this miracle debris. 
reminders of God's working on behalf of His people. Right? On top of the ark was placed what is called the mercy seat. The cover of atonement. This was lid, the lid for the ark. And on top were two angelic figures made of pure gold. Their faces bowed toward the ground in reverence. It was called the mercy seat because once a year on the day of atonement, the high priest would come in and would sprinkle the mercy seat with the blood of the sacrifice for the sins of all the people. And God, rather than destroy the people because of their sin, he would have mercy on them because the blood of the sacrifice now stood between them, between God and his justice and between the people and their sin. They deserved judgment under the law, but now there was blood as a mediator. At the mercy seat is where God and sinners met. God was displaying his power as he was present with his people. Tony Marita says it this way, the Ark of the Covenant is the place where God's presence was majestic and merciful. Majestic and merciful. And here's the challenge as we read this and as we work through Old Testament history. For Israel, it was temporary. Every year, this ritual had to be done. And it could only be done by the high priest on behalf of the people. So the faithful would stand outside, remain outside in the courtyard, hoping, believing that the blood of the sheep or the bull sacrificed for their atonement would be enough for their sins. And it had to happen every year. And if you haven't made the connection less, uh, yet, let me say it this way. Jesus is both the high priest who makes a sacrifice for us and he is the mercy of God who, not by the blood of bulls and goats, but by his own blood, makes it possible for God and sinners like you and me to be reconciled. He is the blood between that where God's justice and his mercy come to meet sinners and reconciles them. And not just temporarily, but permanently. This is how the tabernacle, with all the details of all walls and hooks and gold overlay and the type of wood you're supposed to use and how many cubits, here's how all of that, and some of the stuff we didn't even unpack. We don't even have time to talk about the priests and their garments, although there's lots of cool stuff there too. I encourage you to read that in light of what we're talking about. But how all of this is actually pointing to Jesus as the one who can pay for sin the one who restores the relationship between God and sinners. Listen how, to how the Gospel of Matthew explains what happens when Jesus is crucified. Matthew 27, verse 50 says this. Jesus, being hung on the cross, the perfect, sinless, spotless one, Jesus Christ, the righteous, is hanging on the cross. Matthew 27. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. This is where the Apostle John records where Jesus says, It is finished. It is done. Verse 51. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The curtain in the temple was a new and improved version of the veil of fabric that stood between the outside of the tabernacle and the Holy of Holies. In the temple, it was wider and bigger and thicker and more majestic. And when Jesus says, 
It is done. I have satisfied all the requirements from the Father. The veil itself was torn in two from top to bottom. The person of Jesus. God was pleased that the glory of God would dwell in him. Our own perfect high priest. He himself has made atonement, payment for sin. So that we're now welcomed, not just into the courtyard, not just into the holy place, but into the most holy place. Jesus brings fullness and security to the most insecure part about us. So if I can know that I am secure in God, that my deepest needs are met in Him, that He loves me, and through His Spirit is actually doing something to transform me, if that is true, then my temporary discontentment is not nearly as powerful. If I can know that God is present with me, all the time, that I am never outside of His eye, and I am never outside of His care, that He is with me, then even when I feel unsettled or unsure, I have an anchor that holds me tightly to remind me that I'm not alone. This is what the tabernacle is designed to do. To tell the people That no matter where you are, no matter your circumstances, whether you feel like you're settled or you feel like you're wandering in a wasteland of unknown, God is with you. And if God is with you, then you are secure. As we close our time, I just want to highlight one one last thing. Like I said, there's a we're covering this at like ten thousand feet at eighty miles an hour. But but as we close our time, I just one one last thing. The last thing the priest would pass by in his way into the Holy of Holies was an altar that was burning incense. Now, Aaron was commanded to burn an offering of incense to the Lord in the morning and in the evening. Incense, when burned, would smolder and smoke, and that smoke would rise up to God, and it was often sweet-smelling and very fragrant. Some have argued that you needed the the good-smelling, fragrant incense as a counter to the flesh that was burning out on the bronze altar altar behind. I don't think that's the case. I, I think all of that together was a way of, of, of offering to the Lord. In Revelation chapter 5, there's a picture that the Apostle John gets in this Revelation vision of bowls full of incense burning, smoldering, and smoking, and the smoke is rising up to God. Now, God doesn't have a nose like we picture him to have. God is God. But he's, he's receiving the, the wafting of what's coming from these bowls of incense. And John says that the smoke of incense are the prayers of the saints rising up to God. God with us, Christ Jesus, God incarnate, our great high priest, ensures that our prayers rise to God. And God delights to receive and respond to his people. 
That's why he established this whole system of worship to begin with. He created a way so that his people could commune with him. That he could come near to them and invite them to himself. So so I want us to do that. As we read passages like this that seem to have little significance, like I don't really care how many cubits the wall is, that we wouldn't see it that way. That we'd be reminded that we are being invited to come to God with confidence that in Jesus we can bring to Him all of our cares and our woes, our anxieties and our fears, confident that He hears us. Not because we've gone through all the right steps, but because Jesus, our great high priest, has set the stage for us. And not only set the stage, has then made it possible for us to come to God like this. Confident that He hears us. Confident that by His Spirit, He hears us and responds to us. That we can go from here in just a few minutes knowing we have at our disposal all of God's protection, all of God's provision, and all of God's power as His people because He is with us. Here's how the writer of Hebrews says it, and we'll close with this. Hebrews chapter 10. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a high priest, a great priest over the house of God, because all this is true, the writer of Hebrews says, therefore, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts, not an altar, our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We are being invited in Christ to come to God who is with us, who is present with us. And because he is with us, we can dwell secure. Would you pray with me? Father, we confess, as we sang earlier, prone to wander, prone to forget. Because we can't see you with our eyes, it's easy to forget that you are present with us. Would you give us eyes that can see? Would you help us to know that you indeed are faithful so when you say you will never leave us, that you will never forsake us, that you are with us always, that we would know that. We would know that we know. God, I pray, I pray that you'd encourage your people today. That as we come to the table, we would see with fresh eyes the the bread and the cup and the significance of your death as a perfect sacrifice, the significance of your rising again to new and eternal life, that all of this is ours. Would you encourage and build up your people this morning? In Jesus' name, amen.